Christy Conner, doesn't she do a great job of, of, it's so good, I could sit down right now. I took notes, Christy, it was great. Uh, we are so blessed to have someone so talented who can minister to our children every single Sunday morning. It's beautiful. I'm Ken Helton. I'm one of the elders here, and I've uh, had the high privilege this morning of opening the Word of God with you. And I chose as a scripture that I was going to work on um, the resurrection day. If you think about it, all four of the Gospels close their account with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the complete work that God had sent his son to do. And this morning, we want to focus on that and see how in that culture, in that day, they completely missed the message because of their presuppositions and not learning all of the scripture. We want to focus on the importance of all of the scripture. Earlier that morning, Luke recounts <clears throat> the women uh, going to the tomb. This is Monday morning, early in the morning. The women go. And they, don't f they see the stone rolled away, and they see two angels, but they don't see Jesus. And there was no body. There was not a body. And the angels asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The first proclamation to these women was from the angels of God. You remember the, it was the angels that announced his birth at Bethlehem. Um, God has completed the most powerful event in redemptive history. He sent his son to pay the price for you and I, our sins. His life death, and resurrection is all part of God's redemptive plan, and that's taking place at the close of each uh, of the Gospels. And the resurrection tells us of the efficacy of that atonement. It was complete and total and accepted by God Almighty. And so that's the day we want to focus at. But I want to move away a little bit from the scripture before we jump in and talk about where we live today. And I saw um, something that was recently published on the um, Gallup polls. All of us know who the Gallup people are. They take political surveys all the time. Well, in 1976, Gallup started surveying Christians as to what they believed about the Bible. That they believed that it was the inerrant word of God. And uh, he started that in 76. There was a high point of almost 40% of the people in 1980 and 84 that said, yes, the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and that's what we believe. But you know what's happened since that time? They took the poll just last month, and only 20% 20 20 of the people, half of the people that believed in 1984 still believe that this is the word of God. People have moved away from the inerrancy. When Seminaries move away from the inerrancy of God. When pastors and churches move away from the inerrancy of God, they're adrift. They have no moral compass. There is no compass. We need to be anchored to the rock, Jesus Christ. We need to know that he is the living God and this is his word. 
And when we move away in a society, our society just starts to deteriorate. It has no moral fiber. It has no moral fiber. And we see today what's going on, and uh, it's amazing how the society has slipped in their perception of, of what is moral and what is right. We can ask candidates for the Supreme Court, what is a woman, and it can't be answered. That's how far our society has slipped, uh, which is what Romans chapter 1 would tell us would happen. But today we're going to uh, look at Jesus, and, it, and it's amazing. Here's the day of his resurrection, and he's going to appear. And who does he choose to make himself known? Two apostles that we don't know anything about. This is the only place they appear in the Gospels. We don't even know their names except for one, Cleopas. <clears throat> and they're walking along the way, as Miss Christie told us. They're going home to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now they've been in Jerusalem all week. Uh, they've been followers of Christ, but they're going home and they're completely saddened. They're discouraged by what has happened. Um, they may have been there for the triumphal entry on Monday when he rode in on the colt of a donkey and people were shouting, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, and they may have been there for a Thursday when they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, give, him, give us Barabbas. And they may have been there for Friday morning when he carried his cross uh, as far as he could uh, toward Golgotha. They may have even been there and witnessed him being nailed to that cross. But they remembered that he promised that he would be resurrected by the third day. But you know what? It was the third day. And they haven't seen him yet. Well, in God's grace, we open the, the scene in Luke chapter 13, 24, verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. To who? Two of them. Well, who are them? It's their, his disciples. These are people who have been following him. They've been, they've been the ones that have been in the city. They were his followers. They're the ones that witnessed what all happened. And they talked together about all these things that had happened. Well, what were all these things? So it was while they conversed and reasoned. They're not just, they're trying to work it out. Can you see that? They were talking about it and they were reasoning, trying to understand what they had just witnessed. That Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Isn't it interesting that the most important event that occurred in all of redemptive history had been right in front of their eyes and they missed it? We're told that the scholars have, have disclosed over a hundred times in prophecy in the Old Testament alone the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they missed it. They missed it totally because they had preconceived ideas and they didn't study the entire scripture. They were walking in the wrong direction. The fellowship with the other believers was still in Jerusalem, but they were depressed and they were walking away from fellowship with other believers. Uh, 
They were preoccupied. Their hopes were dashed and frustrated plans they couldn't see beyond. But James tells us in James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here they are walking and seeking God and who approaches them with the Son of God. He's good to his word. I tell you, when we seek him with all of our heart, we will truly find him. That's what the scripture says. And he, he, he shows us that here. In John uh, chapter 20, uh, his account, in all four of the Gospels, they have their account of the resurrection. Uh, Jesus shows himself first to Mary Magdalene. And uh, she was standing there. Verse 20, uh, 14 says, When she had said this, that is, I'm looking for the Lord, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Same thing. He withheld uh, knowledge of himself at that moment. When Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing that he was the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Here God prevented Mary from knowing who he was until just the right time. You know what he said to her? Mary. He called her by her name. At exactly the right moment, Jesus reveals himself to us. At exactly the right moment. I was 26 years old before I came to know him. But from that moment, my heart was excited and burned. Uh, so Mary uh, is the first. A woman. Can you imagine that? Uh, a woman. The reason I say can you imagine that, because in this society, women could not even testify in court. Uh, because they were considered unreliable witnesses. Uh, why did Jesus choose to reveal himself first to a woman and then to two no-name disciples? You see, he does things differently. Uh, he chooses to meet us where we are, in our doubt, in our hunger, to know him. That's where he meets us. Then he, Jesus, said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Their whole demeanor displayed their despair. Their world had collapsed. They had hoped for the Messiah that would reign and rule. Then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things that have happened there these days? How could, how could you not know? They assumed he had, was on his way back from Jerusalem, and he was walking. And how could he not know what had happened? Um, Jesus often, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see he'll open an encounter with a question. He will ask questions. He even asks a, a, a lame man, would you like to be healed? Uh, Jesus wants to know where we are. He wants us to articulate uh, what we need from him. Now, I'll tell you, this event was not done in a closet. Uh, more than the 12, more than the 70, more than the 120 knew about it. 
Everybody in Jerusalem knew about it. There were a quarter of a million people who had come in from the Roman Empire to celebrate the Passover. It was done every year. People came <clears throat> for the Passover and they offered the sacrificial sacrifices at the Passover. So there are a quarter of a million visitors besides the regular uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem. And uh, they were all aware that on Monday of that week he had ridden in uh, the triumphal entry. They knew that. They knew what had happened with the trials. They knew about his being condemned and turned over by their religious leaders. They knew that. <clears throat> but they did not know what the scripture said about that. It's very hard to believe <clears throat> that these men were taught in synagogues for years and their synagogue leaders didn't know, did not emphasize the entire word of God. We should be admonished to look at the entire word of God, and that's what Jesus is telling them. You didn't know all of the scriptures. And so, Jesus asked them, he said to them, what things? So they said to him concerning the things Jesus, concerning things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. They got that right. Jesus was a prophet. He is a prophet. He has three offices. He is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He, when he foretold prophecy and he sat uh, on the Olivet and Discourse in Matthew 24 and prophesied what would occur when he's coming back, he spoke prophecy all the time. He was a prophet, but he was not just a man. And he was a high priest. He came and offered himself freely for our sins, for the sins of the people on the cross at the day of, uh, at the day of atonement. You see, uh, he's coming back. We'll know him when he comes back. No one will miss him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's coming back as king. We need to know all the prophecies that concern that. But they didn't believe the scripture. They had a limited understanding. You know, I've heard people say that, well, I, I've read the Old Testament. I don't understand a lot of that stuff, and uh, it really doesn't matter to me. I just want to focus on the New Testament. Uh, or, yeah, there's a lot to be gained from maybe Ecclesiastes, but I don't understand anything about it. Uh, I want to stay out of that. Uh, let me tell you, Jesus, let's listen to what he says. He wants us to study the entire word of God. It's all written down for our edification and for his glory. We're to study it uh, with diligence. <clears throat> Let's look at uh, Luke 24, 21. Now we'll see where their eyes were. We'll see what was on their heart. But we were hoping that he was going to come and redeem Israel. Code. We were hoping he was going to come and throw the, the Romans off and become our political leader and lead us back into freedom. We don't have to pay taxes to the Romans, Romans anymore. We're free. Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things have happened. And they were alluding to the fact that he made statements that he would rise on the third day. Now, I think it's really, it was interesting to me that it's probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. And the day in 
in uh, Israel, it's counted from six in the evening until six the following evening. It goes from evening to evening. And the third day has not even passed, and they're giving up already. They haven't seen him, and they're getting impatient. When I was in college, we used to have a rule, or we were told a rule, if your professor didn't come, if it was a full professor, you had to remain in your seat for 15 minutes. And then if you didn't show up, you were free to leave. You didn't get penalized for that. This is the Lord of the universe. They're not even giving him a full day. <laughs> this is the God of creation. And these people are impatient. Where is he? Where is he? Um, do we ever get impatient with God? Does he not answer our prayers on our timetable? Do we get discouraged because he doesn't do what our preconceived idea is that he should do? Let me tell you, he's perfect. He's never been late and he's never been early. And he tells us to continue to pray and trust him. And that's what Jesus is going to tell them. Look at the entire scripture and trust me. <clears throat> They were blinded. They were blinded by the wrong presuppositions. And certain women in our company, these are the two still recounting to Jesus what happened, who arrived at the tomb early. They astonished us. Well, how did they astonish you? They didn't find the body. Well, duh, didn't he say he was going to rise on the third day? Why were they astonished? They didn't find the volume. Also, they had seen a vision of angels saying that he was alive. We've already commented on the veracity of what they thought women, uh, their testimony was. And certain of those who were with us, when, the, when they heard this, they ran and found the tomb. What the women had said was true. They didn't, but it was empty, but they didn't see him. Now, they've had the women's testimony. They had uh, earlier in Luke uh, the testimony of the women about the angels who have said he's risen. And then they have Peter and John running, and they verify what the women said. They still don't get it. They still don't understand. And I'm just amazed that that's why Jesus is there. He's going to help them with their unbelief. He's going to help them overcome their unbelief by opening the scriptures and pouring it out to them. Um, I want to use a slide that is an illustration of uh, a prophetic tool that's used in scripture. Quite often in scripture, there uh, are prophecies that have a dual fulfillment or a partial fulfillment. So you see parallel through the Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah who would come and suffer and die for the sins of the people. But you also have a prophecy of the Messiah who would come and reign and rule with righteousness and justice. And the government would be on his shoulder. And uh, guess which one they wanted to believe? Yes, they totally put the, the suffering Messiah out of their their context of belief. Is there anything that you've read in the Bible that you don't like? 
that you don't want to believe? You know what? We have to trust the God of the universe who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have to trust that what he allows to go on he is in control and he's sovereign. He only has our best interest in his glory in mind. So anything that he allows to come into our life is ultimately for us to build us up and to perfect our faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he allows things to allow them to come in our life that we might continue to trust him, even when we don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> and so in prophecy, you see these Two events. You see the first, pro the first prophecy of his coming. The second prophecy that there, we're going to look at in Isaiah uh, talks about uh, that first event. But there's a future fulfillment. You see that distance between the mountains? Have you ever stood in the, at, in the mountains in Colorado and you see ranges? You can't tell how far it's between the ranges. You see the peaks at one range and then they look like they've just got more mountains right behind them and behind those. Well, that's a great illustration of God's timetable. He doesn't tell us how much time is between the first coming and his second coming. That's called the church age. And we know that it's going to last as long as it takes God to call in everyone that he wants saved during the church era. That, he's told us, no man knows the day or the hour when he returns, but we will know the seasons. And so that's a good illustration for me, who need pictures to be illustrated. That's why I love Miss Christie's lessons. I learn a lot. Um, but now listen to what Jesus says to them. This caught my attention. Verse 25. Then he said to them, great job, guys. I'm glad you're still looking for me. He says, oh, foolish ones, what a harsh rebuke. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all, not some, but all that the prophets have spoken. You need to believe it all. He's not, they've not left any out. All of the pertinent data has been presented to you, and you need to believe it all. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them all of the scriptures about himself. How would you like to sit in that Bible study? The God of the universe who wrote history, it's his story, it's about him, is teaching two disciples that we never heard of before, all about himself. What an awesome God. What an awesome God. I'm sure that he told them, he went back and started the story of redemption in, in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered the world, and man chose to disobey God and to sin. Michael likes to say, the fall of man was great. Great was the fall. It was. The whole universe was put out of joint because of sin. Not only did man sin, but the universe itself suffered the consequences. And from that point, he started to reveal himself in the scriptures in the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses. And then he went on to the prophets and he told them and he revealed from the prophets all the scriptures that disclosed who he was. Wow, what a Bible study, huh? Yeah, they thought it was too. Uh, but they should have known more. 
because the disciples, he told them repeatedly. Matthew 16 gives us an account uh, from Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Jesus is at the height of his ministry as far as the flocks coming. A lot of people are coming. And uh, he pulls away with uh, his disciples alone. And he asked them a question. Jesus always has questions. He said, who do the people say I am? And they said, well, some say you're, you're the prophet. Remember, that's what these guys thought. You're a prophet. Others said, you're John the Baptist, risen. And then he pointed at Peter. And he said, who do you say I am? You see, that's a question each one of us have to answer. Who do you say I am? See, that's where we stand before him and confess what we truly believe in our heart about who he is. And Peter, with the help of the Holy Spirit and God the Father, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's it. Jesus said, my Father revealed that to you. Woo, great. Now listen to what he says. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. He started teaching them of the events that were going to occur. He started with the 12, and he repeated it multiple times. He's in Galilee, and he's going to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. They missed it. Let me show you how much they missed it. Let me show you how much their preconceived teaching was false. Then Peter took him aside. Oh, your Lord. He took him aside and he began to rebuke him. He's rebuking the Lord of the universe. Peter's pretty bold, right? Uh, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter's the one that just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Same person. Now listen to what Jesus says to him. But he, he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You see, when we have a perverted view of the scripture, when God the Son is speaking, when the word is speaking to us, Satan wants to pervert it. He wants to take a little, a little truth and twist it. He's the father of lies. He is the father of deceit. Every cult believes a little bit of truth of Scripture. But Satan has taken it and twisted it into a lie. And that's what Jesus tells Peter. Peter, you're deceived. <clears throat> the father of lies has deceived you. Even the closest disciple did not believe that the required death and resurrection of the Messiah must be. Jesus credits Satan for taking the, God's truth and twisting it. Then after the resurrection, Peter and John were slow to believe. They did not see that 1,500 years of their teaching, since the time that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, God had in, put in place a structure that was picturing the death of an innocent animal for the sins of his people. 
We all know the story that what happened on the, the night of Passover when the death angel passed over, they took the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentils. And that's what they had just been in, in uh, Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. But for 1,500 years, everything revolved around a sacrificial system where an innocent lamb was our animal, was put to death for the sins of the people. It was a temporary atonement. It was only good for a temporary time and only as good as the person's heart who is sacrificing it. Um, but they had that picture. You wonder how could they miss <clears throat> when they had that kind of picture. <clears throat> And over the years, just think of the number of thousands of animals that had been, that had been sacrificed. The book of Hebrews tells us all that came to the end with a perfect sacrifice. Uh, scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood for the forgiveness, there is no forgiveness for, the, for sins. Sacrificial system pointed to a substitutionary death. An animal who was without spot or blemish was offered up as a sacrifice, as a substitute. The perfect Lamb of God would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Clear picture, but they missed it. Are there any parts of the scripture you don't believe? Think about that. John tells us about the scripture. The Gospel of John starts with, <clears throat> with this statement. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and made its dwelling with us. The word is teaching this Bible study. I think he got it right. <laughs> what a magnificent trip, walking along the way in the countryside. Notice the change in their hearts now as they feed on the word of God from the hand of the lamb who was sacrificed uh, for the, on their behalf. <clears throat> this is probably one of the scriptures he, he went through in the Old Testament without a doubt. It's so clear that in the prophecies, Jesus is woven as a thread through the entire thing. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 53, it doesn't get any clearer than this. Starting with verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten of him, and afflicted. He carries our sorrows. What he's bearing is our sins and our sorrows. And he was pierced for our transgressions. It's interesting that the detail here even includes the Roman soldier who pierced him with a spear to ensure that he was dead instead of breaking his legs. Phenomenal details of all of it woven together in a tapestry of the truth. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The enmity that God had for sin the hatred and wrath that God had for sin, he put on his son. You remember the prayer in, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, if there's another way, take this cup from me, but not my will. Thy will be done. There's no other way. There's no path 
to our salvation other than the cross of Jesus Christ with the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. What a, what a great reminder. All we like sheep have gone astray, verse 6 says. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. For he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died. He had to die. The wages of sin is death. He had to die in order to satisfy the wrath of God. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. How much detail is that? There's a thief on either side of him that is being crucified. He's going to be thrown in a common grave, if not for this next statement. And with the rich in his death, who came and took the body? Joseph of Arimathea. And asked a rich man, asked to have Pilate release his body. The detail is amazing. They saw this. They saw it. Uh, it goes on. Yet it was the Lord, the Lord's will to crush him. This was the will of the Father. to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offsprings and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper his hands. If you notice, it was God the Father whose plan from time immemorial was to rectify his relationship with fallen man. From the garden, we've all borne the sin nature of our earthly father. But it was God's plan all along. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A all along to reveal himself and to go to the cross that he might pour out his wrath. His holiness cannot stand sin. He poured out his wrath on his son. How much does he love us? How much does his son love us? to take upon himself our sin in order that we might be reconciled to God. We were enemies before we believed, but we might be reconciled to the God of the universe because of what had happened on Friday on the cross. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. It goes in and says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. You know who his offsprings are? Look around the room. His children, the children of God who trusted Jesus Christ as his savior. It says he's going to live to see that. And the Lord will prosper the work of his hands. I tell you, it was very clear in great detail in all of these Old Testament prophecies what God's plan was. Look what happens. The disciples' eyes are opened. Luke 24, 28. Then they drew near the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would move on farther. But they constrained him. Don't go. Saying, abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. They asked God to abide with them. Uh, I, I think about Revelation. 
in one of the passages it talks about Jesus outside the door of one of the churches and he's pictured as knocking. He said, if you open the door, I'll come in and sup with you, dine with you, have a relationship with you. That's what they're asking. Come in. Come in our house. They are so excited. The transformation that the Word of God makes in our lives is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I told you at the age 26, <clears throat> I became a Christian. Kay and I had been married for about three years, and I was on a job interview. And um, the man on the interview was a Christian, and he was learning how to share his faith with other businessmen. He shared his faith with, with me. I was so convicted that uh, when he asked me if I wanted to trust Jesus as my Savior, I said yes. And so we got on our knees there in his office, ninth floor, Birmingham, Alabama, on October the 22nd, 1971, and I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. My heart exploded with joy. The burden of my sin was gone. It was removed. Excuse me. I couldn't wait to tell my wife. Now, of course, I spent the rest of the day there. This was before we had cell phones. So when I went to the interview, she was at the University of Alabama where I was completing my graduate work. I said, I'll be home for lunch. I didn't. I wasn't. I stayed with him all day till about 4 o'clock in the evening. He was sharing with me, not about his company any longer, not about his business plans to move into 14 new states and to do all this. He was sharing with me what it meant to be a child of God and what the Word of God said about who we are and His plans for us. My heart burned within me. And I rushed home. And Kay was cleaning up the dinner dishes that she had gotten tired of waiting on me. And I didn't show up for lunch. And my son, Rick, who's here, was about 18 months old at the time. And I dashed into the kitchen where she was. And I could not wait to tell her, you won't believe what I did today. And she looked at me, and she said, what? And I said, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And she leaned over and sniffed my breath. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more about that. <laughs> um, you see, my heart was burning within me. I could not wait to tell my wife. 90 days later, Kay made that same decision. We were, she was pregnant with our second son at the time. <clears throat> we used to come home in the evenings. We had one Bible. We would sit on the bed. She was very pregnant, couldn't sit in a chair. And... We would read the Bible to each other. And we were so excited by the Word of God. It was all new and wonderful. Do you have that kind of excitement? You should, because you can meet Him every day you open your Bible for your quiet time. It should, your heart should burn within you when you see what the Lord of the universe has done. You should be burning to share it with someone we have the good news, and we're called to share, to share our good news, to share Christ with others. If you look at what happens 
Next, you'll see how they responded. Now it came to pass, as they sat at the table, this is where they were eating with Jesus, the disciples, that they invited him to come in, that he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they knew him and then he vanished because he had another thing to do. He had to go meet with the other apostles. You see, uh, their reaction is their eyes were open. And verse 32 says, And they said to one, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures for us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and told them what had happened. You see, that's the first thing we want to do when you really know Jesus, when you really know you know that you know, you want to share him with others. You should have a burning passion to share the gospel. And then uh, Jesus tells us that uh, we're to know all of the scriptures because he's coming back. And his great Olivetan discourse in Matthew 24, when, uh, which is probably Wednesday evening, uh, he's been in the temple uh, twice uh, and chastising the religious leaders for um, hiding the word and their hypocrisy. And he's walking out of the city and his disciples call his attention to the beautiful temple, magnificent. It was still under construction, been under construction for 84 years. And it was a magnificent, maybe the eighth wonder of the world. And um, they said, look at this thing, this beautiful thing. And he said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Why did he say that? Because in 70 AD, that came true. Not one stone was left on another. There's nothing but foundation stone there. I think Jesus said that to emphasize to us, pay attention to my words. They're all going to come true. And I'm going to show you 27 years later when the Romans sacked this city and tear that temple down and burn the city and kill a million 100,000 Jews and crucify 30,000. All my words will come to pass. And he's just told them in chapter 24, he, out, he laid out an outline for the book of Revelation which is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, then he, give us, he gives us our orders. And our orders are given in Matthew 28. All of us are familiar with this passage. We call this the Great Commission because the Commander-in-Chief commissions us. Uh, <clears throat> when I was in the service and armor school at Fort Knox, Kentucky, they taught us how to write orders. They had to be clear, concise. You had to know who was giving the authority. You had to know clearly what the order required you to do and that it was not easily misinterpreted. This is that kind of an order. Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority, Jesus speaking just before his ascension, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How can we teach them if we haven't been in the Word? How can we teach, how can we carry out that instruction from the Lord? As His children, it's our job to obey the Commander-in-Chief and to advance His kingdom. To do that, we have to know who He is. We have to know what His Word says because we're going to pass it on to the next generation. We're going to pass it on to our families and our friends, the next generation, the good news that Jesus Christ came to the earth to pay for our sins. All we have to do is know that we're a sinner and confess him as Lord. Romans, uh, Paul writes, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. That's the heart message that we have to have. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is what we build our life around. We thank you that it is you that gives us life, that you give us the uh, joy and the excitement of a relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of glory. And one day you're going to return and you're going to call each one of us into your presence. Those who've trusted you as their Savior will know that your compassion, your friendship, and your love for all eternity. We ask that you go with us this week as we go out. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement. May our hearts be encouraged and not discouraged because of who you are and what you've done for us. We ask these things in the strong and powerful name of our risen Savior and for his glory alone. Amen.